Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from different sides of the debate over the U.S. response to Mexican cartels and what role military force might play. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Ilya Soman. He is professor of law at George Mason University and Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. More at Cato.org. First, we talk with Joshua Trevino, Chief of Intelligence and Research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, TexasPolicy.com. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Talking today about the uh, the approach of the United States toward Mexico, toward the drug traffic across the border of Mexico, and how it might be a change, adjusted, amended. I, I, I want to make sure that I'm not putting words in your mouth, but in reading your testimony from uh, in front of the House from back in September, I, I think it's pretty clear that you're, you're saying it, it really already is a war in, in many ways. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it is. Uh, but, we, but we have to be careful as to how we how we define uh, that state of war. Mexico is at war within itself, um, manifestly. Uh, the the unfortunate reality and the horror of the cartel war post two thousand six is that it has claimed uh, hundreds of thousands of, of Mexicans, uh, to say nothing of those who have been hurt, displaced, wounded, and so on. And so, and so in Mexico, you see this, this incredibly um, uh, tragic uh, scenario of a country, a country with good people in it, uh, by the way, uh, who have been racked uh, by real warfare uh, that would be recognizable to anybody, um, uh, you know, versed in the topic, uh, and, and has been for almost 20 years now uh, with no end in sight. And then as far as the United States goes, uh, you, know, you know, fortunately, we're not at war. We have to be, we have to be careful with the, with the language and the metaphors that we use. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have been very emphatic on is the need for the United States and for the state of Texas to use all tools at its disposal. And unfortunately, the gravity of the situation in Mexico, the violence coming from it, uh, including from the Mexican state, it's an important point, uh, mean that we uh, we're at a point now where we have to consider um, uh, bringing the U.S. armed forces in. I say that with regret, uh, but we have to deal in reality. Yes, this is one of the points that you make. Mex- the Mexican state must understand the U.S. armed forces may be brought to bear if it continues to fail to exercise full sovereignty over its territory. This is a topic that has been discussed in some presidential campaigns and has been discussed in commentaries on both the left and the right. What would be the point at which you would say? U.S. armed forces need to be involved in some sort of hot conflict uh, on the border. What's the, you know, I mean, that, that's a great question. You know, what's the, what, what's the trigger for something like that happening? Uh, we have to understand that the, the, the engagement with armed force, military force, is, is a spectrum rather than a binary, uh, right? I sound like a gender ideologue talking, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, hear me out uh, on it. Um, we could engage the armed forces right now. For example, in uh, using the navy, uh, uh, you know, Indo-Pakam has has a, uh, a very functional large fleet, mostly devoted to the Western Pacific. Uh, but remember that the core purpose of our armed forces is to keep Americans safe. And uh, why wouldn't the United States Navy involve itself in intercepting uh, some of the fentanyl precursor traffic that goes into, say, um, you know, Puerto Lazaro Cardenas uh, on the western coast of Mexico? Things like that you could engage immediately. 
Or to pick another example, uh, why wouldn't uh, United States Air Force uh, drone assets uh, be used uh, to surveil uh, either uh, into Mexico or over Mexico, as cases warrant, to collect uh, intelligence uh, and information on, uh, you you name it, trafficked persons, goods moving north? Um, Furthermore, why wouldn't we engage in signals intelligence collection? Uh, All all of these are uses of the armed forces, right? And And so right now, today, these are things that could be done. When people talk about using the armed forces in Mexico, though, there tends to be this image of, of uh, you know, General Pershing mm-hmm. uh, leading an army in to uh, chase Pancho Villa. Uh, that's not really what we advocate. Uh, I, th- I think it's several steps into the future and probably premature to talk about uh, things like that. But uh, to give one example, you could certainly envision, um, uh, you know, preferably in cooperation with the Mexicans, by the by. That's always, that's always the preferable standard. I don't think that cooperation is forthcoming because the Mexican state right now is essentially a partner to the cartels, uh, which we can, we can talk about if you wish. But uh, either, either with the partnership of the Mexican state, which is the preferable option, uh, or, or, or without it as need be, if, if Americans are in danger... Uh, or if there is a uh, you know a need to um, uh, to arrest, apprehend, uh, kill uh, a bad guy uh, who is uh, you know imminently threatening American lives, all of this falls within the broadly accepted framework of of legitimate self defense, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's something that the Mexicans, the Mexican state, and the Mexican authorities have uh, really really pushed to the limit on. Uh, states in general have an obligation to prevent their territory when they can from being used as a base of operation against their neighbors. Uh, the Mexicans not only fail to do that, but uh, in their governing apparatus, they actively cooperate with the threats uh, coming to America. And that's the, 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 that's just something that we can't tolerate in the long run. You say that the Mexican state and the cartels exist in what you say, conscious synthesis. Is it, synthesis, it, yes. is, it, is it fair to say the Mexican government at this point is as responsible as the cartels for whatever consequences we're, we're finding here in the U.S.? A hundred percent. Yes. Uh, I, I would not have said that uh, a little over a decade ago. Uh, and, and of course, you know, we have to understand kind of the descent of the Mexican state uh, over the past decade. Uh, you know, the past three presidents of Mexico. By the way, the Mexican president has a single six-year term. There's no re-election. So uh, you, you had a president named Felipe Calderon, uh, who I think had some, I would describe them as competency issues, basically tried to do the right thing vis-a-vis the cartels. Uh, he left office in 2012. He was succeeded by a fellow named Enrique Peña Nieto, uh, who was much more corrupt, uh, but motivated essentially by, by, by greed, uh, less than ideology. And, uh, and he, he opened the door to a lot more of the state uh, cartel collaboration since 2018, uh, you've had the current president of Mexico, a fellow named uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He goes by his initials, AMLO, A-M-L-O. And uh, he, he really is, to, to, to our analysis, the true malignant uh, figure in all this, because he's the one with his, with his Morena movement, which is a left-wing uh, political coalition in Mexico that he created uh, and leads. Uh, he, he's the one who's really brought the, uh, this, this partnership between the Mexican cartels and the Mexican state uh, to its fruition, uh, and so and so, you know what, what what you see is is these two entities kind of existing in parallel with one another, profiting from the other, and uh, and, and 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 at times acting uh, on the other's behest. There's a ton of examples of it. 
Um, I'll, I'll just give one uh, because uh, there's, there's probably too many for the length of this hit. Uh, but last May, um, the Mexican president was in Veracruz uh, giving a uh, giving a speech, and he publicly uh, vowed that if the United States uh, ever tried to uh, attack uh, any criminals in Mexico, any cartel members, he would use the Mexican armed forces uh, to fight the United States on behalf of the cartels. Uh, and, and examples like this happen over and over and over. And at some point, we have to, we in the policymaking class, and certainly our elected officials, need to sit up and uh, recognize that though we may wish for a positive relationship with Mexican officialdom, though we, though we may feel positively toward the Mexicans, as I personally do, mm-hmm. uh, the Mexican state has, has made its choices. And uh, unfortunately, Mexico in the 2020s is looking more and more like Panama in the 1980s. Joshua Trevino is with us from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You say that part of this, uh, part of the reason for this is because the U.S. and Mexico don't have a, a base of common interest anymore. What would you say should be the United States' primary interest when it comes to the border? And what would you say right now is Mexico's primary interest? Great question. Uh, you know, in in days gone by, the common interest between the two countries was was a shared prosperity. That's how we got NAFTA. That's how we got the the, the trade regime uh, that we currently have. There was this idea. It was a, it was it was a wonderful idea. Uh, it was a dream that I wish could could have come true, uh, in which both countries plus Canada uh, were able to create this this common North American market and you know evolve as democratic societies and so on. Uh, vis a vis Mexico, I, I think that's over for now. Um, uh, you know, you know, right now, uh, the, the the Mexican state's primary interest is in consolidating its own power at home, and then and then in candor, making as much money as it possibly can off of the export of trafficked persons and uh, trafficked goods uh, northward across the border. We shouldn't ignore, too, that there's an ideological component to this. Uh, the The Mexican state right now is run by individuals who are ideologically anti-American. They're they're classic members of the Mexican left uh, who have uh, this very, um, you know, what they call an anti-Yankee, anti-imperialist agenda. And uh, there is, I don't think this is the primary motivation, but there is a substantive motivation within them to do harm to the United States, basically on principle. Uh, and so, you know, th- that all merges together into something very, uh, very malevolent uh, on our southern border. Our interest, to, to, to answer your question fully, it seems obvious, right? I mean, our interest is, is a safe and secure border. Americans should be just as safe living on a bluff overlooking the Rio Grande uh, as they are living in, uh, the, in the center of Missouri, uh, for example. And, uh, and, and they're not. Uh, the reality is that much of the border, uh, this, is the, this is my family's native region, by the way, mm-hmm. much of the border is, is either under a constant threat from Mexican criminal activity or, or, or sometimes actual operational control uh, on the Texas side, uh, which is an appalling thing to say. But, you know, it, as much as Mexico has lost sovereignty over its own territory and uh, former Ambassador Christopher Landau said that Mexico has lost control over 35 to 45 percent of its territory. Just imagine that, by the way, to uh, to, to the cartels. Uh, we, too, in the United States uh, are losing bits and pieces uh, as it goes. And it seems small at first, uh, but uh, it's small until it gets big. Should we heed uh, the Mexican president's warning uh, against taking action against these individual and specific cartels if Mexico will not act by itself? No. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the huge mistakes that our policymaking class makes, uh, the Biden administration is, is, is fully guilty of this, but it's not just them. 
is 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 taking Mexican officialdom seriously. Um, uh, they, you know, th- again, there was an era in which we could assume uh, mutual goodwill and, uh, and 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 mutual respect, and that era is gone. Uh, any approach to them at an official level. Uh, that doesn't start with the premise that they have to prove themselves to us in terms of efficacy, sincerity, um, uh, goodwill, uh, we think is a non-starter. So if AMLO is warning the United States against uh, against action against criminal cartels, well, the reason he's doing that is because they're his business partners, because they've got the gunmen who come out and make sure that his party wins state elections, because they fund his preferred candidates, because his former Secretary of the Gobernación, uh, his cousin, gave the police files in Tabasco State uh, to the local cartels when he was in office over and over and over. That's why he's issuing the warnings. And the idea that the United States should pay any heed to it is, is absolutely preposterous. This illuminates one thing. I want to make this very clear, Scott. We, we really hold all the cards versus mm-hmm. the Mexicans. I'm not saying that they are without leverage against us uh, and, and you have to give it to them. They, they, they exert their leverage uh, cannily and well. But ultimately, uh, we've got the dominant economy. We have the predominance of force. We have the predominance of interest. And we have, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase, the rectitude of our intentions um, that supersede anything that they can bring to bear. And uh, our, our failure to, 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 to use that uh, to our advantage as a country is entirely on us. Um, but the good news is that we can make the opposite choice if we wish. Does meaningful cooperation remain possible? There, there will be a new president. There, there are term limits. Will a new president bring a new uh, philosophy? Or is this a, a policy decision that is baked into the cake, so to speak, now for, for Mexican authorities? The aesthetics are going to change. Uh, the, the, the overwhelming probability, and you know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't place uh, huge bets on this, but it, it is probable that the, that the president's, the Mexican president's preferred successor, a woman named Claudia Scheinbaum, who used to be uh, basically the mayor of Mexico City, uh, is going to become president. So, and so this, this Morena coalition that he heads will continue to be in power. He himself will continue to exert um, uh, control behind the scenes. Uh, her, her, her aesthetic will change. She's not like him. Uh, he's, he's kind of this earthy peasant populist. Um, uh, she's, uh, she, she's a big city intellectual. Um, uh, I think she's, uh, I think she's a, a chemist with a doctoral degree, if I remember correctly. So, 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 so she doesn't, she's not going to sound, she's not going to behave the same. That being said, the coalition of interests within, within Morena remain the same and the synthesis with the cartels will remain the same. So you'll probably see some window dressing is my guess. But the fundamentals uh, and the fundamental lack of cooperation, uh, I predict, uh, will, will will continue. And so the questions that we're facing now under um, Lopez Obrador will continue under Scheinbaum. Uh, I would like to be wrong, uh, and, and I mean that uh, sincerely. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I, I think uh, I think the proof will be in within uh, within a year. Joshua Trevino is Chief of Intelligence and Research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you. Now to hear another side of the argument about the U.S. response to Mexican cartels and what role military force might play, we talk with Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University and Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Ilya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Having a conversation today about the possibility of, of military action, I guess I'll, I'll call it, along the Mexican border when it comes to the spread of fentanyl across the border. 
I want to start by asking this question because you have a piece over at the Volok Conspiracy that says a dangerous plan to turn the war on drugs into a real war by attacking Mexico. Do you think it's proper, is it right to label these conversations as a continuation of the war on drugs? Or is it something different because of the unique danger, uh, the, the, the poison really, that the fentanyl is and what it's doing to our society? I think this would be a massive escalation of the war on drugs. Uh, and the fentanyl situation is itself actually a product of the harm that the war on drugs causes. Uh, launching an attack on Mexico to try to deal with it uh, would only make the situation worse and would create many other problems, such as destroying our relationship with uh, one of our two major neighbors and also with what is now our largest uh, trading partner. The fact that fentanyl is in some ways a more dangerous drug than other illegal drugs are, I don't think somehow fundamentally justifies waging a real war as opposed to the so far mostly metaphorical war on drugs. Indeed, the whole development of the fentanyl crisis is itself a result of drug prohibition. Uh, it's in the further extension of what scholars call the iron law of prohibition, which is that when you prohibit uh, drugs, it incentivizes producers and consumers to move to stronger ones because you get more bang for uh, a given uh, set of bucks, so to speak, a given uh, shipment, uh, which when shipment is risky, there's a, a payoff for doing that. Uh, so this current situation is a product of the misguided war on drugs that we've had up till now. And if we respond to it with militarization, uh, we are unlikely to solve the problem, but we are likely to cause an enormous amount of additional harm. On that law of prohibition, if there were action taking, if it did halt the fentanyl traffic or severely curtail the fentanyl traffic on the border, on our Mexican border, would that significantly decrease the supply, the overall supply in our country in any meaningful way? Uh, so whether it would really reduce it across the Mexican border is itself an iffy question, given that most of what is brought across is brought across through ports of entry by U.S. citizens. But assuming it did, there are lots of other ways for fentanyl and other drugs to get into the United States. We could perhaps organize some sort of massive police state to try to fully control the flow. Even that might not do it. Uh, but past efforts to interdict drugs from particular sources have usually just led to them coming in uh, from other kinds of sources, which is what happened when uh, years ago a massive interdiction effort was launched to, uh, to try to deal with Colombia, for example. A couple of months ago, March 2023, there's an NBC News story, uh, Mexico's president saying that fentanyl is America's problem. He says that none of the drug is being produced in Mexico. If that is the state of mind of the Mexican government and America says, no, this is a real problem that we have to do something about, what options does that leave us if it appears the Mexican government is unwilling to act in any way? So I think our best option is the one we've had all along for many years now, which is simply to end the war on drugs and pursue legalization. Uh, that would 
eliminate all the vast harm caused by the war on drugs in terms of imprisoning huge numbers of people, creating police and other corruption, uh, and diverting law enforcement resources away from violent and property crime. And by legalization, we also create more incentives for people to pursue less dangerous variants of these drugs and ones that would be less problematic. And finally, I think the ultimate answer here is uh, for people to take responsibility for their own bodies and their own lives and to decide for themselves what sorts of risks uh, they're willing to take. We have framed the discussion so far in terms of fentanyl and the war on drugs. I do wonder if, and, and some advocates of a, of a more militaristic policy also mention the, the human trafficking that we see coming across our, our southern border. Does that combination of, yes, fentanyl, war on drugs, but also this added human trafficking component, does that change your mind or change the calculus of the situation in any way? It certainly doesn't justify going to war against Mexico, which would make any problems at the southern border that we currently have much worse uh, by destroying our relationship with our largest or more, more at least most populous neighbor. In addition, the word human trafficking is a very fuzzy one in that, or the term human trafficking, in that it can be used to mean many different things. Uh, in its more extreme form, it's used to mean forcibly kidnapping people and putting them into sexual slavery or something like that. But the vast majority of what's happening at the southern border is not anything remotely like that. It is simply people wanting to enter the United States, seeking freedom and opportunity, but being denied any opportunity to do so legally. So instead, they do so illegally, just as the harms of the war on drugs are largely a product of our creating a vast illegal market by forbidding the legal one or mostly forbidding it. So similarly, we have forbidden another uh, legal market are mostly forbidden it. That is legal migration uh, for most of the people who want it. And therefore, we ended up with another big illegal market through illegal migration. Here, too, the best solution is legalization, uh, which would enable many people to uh, find freedom and opportunity in the United States without having to resort to illegal channels or work with traffickers. And uh, they would provide vast benefits to our economy and society. Uh, as past uh, immigrants have done. Uh, and we would also eliminate most of the disorder at the border, uh, which occurs because people who are desperate for opportunity to escape horrible conditions, in many cases to escape socialism and communism, uh, main, most of them have little or no other choice other than to try to escape illegally. So they end up doing what you see in these uh, TV and news images. If we let them enter legally instead, there would be little or no disorder at the border, uh, and there would be vast economic and other benefits. Ilya Soman is with us, professor of law at George Mason University, Kenneth Simon sharing constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Just beginning these discussions or having these discussions, do we take for granted the, the benefits of these long, peaceful borders that we have with our neighbors to the north and to the south, that something like this has not really been considered before. Do we do we look past some of the benefits we take for granted for having these, these peaceful... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a yeah. great question. For the last hundred years or more, America has benefited from having largely peaceful and friendly relations with both our northern neighbor Canada and our southern neighbor Mexico. Uh, when you have neighbors that are hostile, 
and there's constant low-level warfare or worse. The situation is terrible uh, and uh, very problematic from both an economic and a security point of view. Uh, and if we, in effect, invade Mexico for the purpose of expanding the, on, the war on drugs, then we will for many years to come, destroy that peaceful relationship with them. They will not soon forgive us if that happens, and therefore it would be constant low-level warfare, violence, disruption of our trading relationship, which is currently the largest that we have with any country. So if you think the current situation at the border is problematic, and it is in some ways, uh, the situation that would result if we turn Mexico into an enemy and have essentially constant low level or even sometimes higher level warfare with them, that would be much, much worse. Uh, just ask Vladimir Putin what happens when you alienate your, your neighbors uh, and they view you as a conqueror, as an enemy rather than as a, uh, as a cooperative friend. Uh, you know, that has not worked out well for Russia and doing similar things would not work out well for us either. You would also, by the way, destroy America's reputation in the world because we could not credibly stand up for any kind of international law or moral values or principles of liberty and democracy if we're simultaneously invading our neighbor uh, because of the war on drugs. That was right where I was going. You mentioned the Volokh conspiracy piece, attacking Mexico would destroy America's moral authority in the world. What would our allies think about this sort of action, particularly the uh, liberal democratic allies that we have in, say, Europe and, and I guess more specifically Latin America? So in Europe, certainly there would be widespread condemnation, I think. And in Latin America also, there is a history of tension between, on the one hand, uh, seeking to imitate the U.S. in various ways, trying to have a successful liberal democracy as we, despite our flaws to a large extent, have. But also there is a history of anti-Americanism in that hemisphere that had in or at least in the southern part of the hemisphere that has deep roots and pretty obviously invading Mexico would give a boost to anti-American forces in Latin America, particularly those on the socialist left, but perhaps also some on the nationalist right as well. So it would predictably alienate huge numbers of people in Latin America, even outside of Mexico itself, and weaken the American in position in the world. Conservatives say, well, we want to contest China and curb its rising power. Among the biggest winners of our alienating both our allies in Europe and our friends in Latin America would, of course, be the Chinese and their potential for expanding their power. Uh, it's hard to come up with a better way to strengthen their position at the expense of ours. Do you leave open any possibility of smaller scale military operations, perhaps with the approval of the Mexican government? Is there a possibility in your mind that those sort of limited actions could achieve some limited goals? So I think small scale actions with the cooperation of the Mexican government would be far less harmful uh, than the kind of larger scale actions we were talking about and ones that didn't have the consent of Mexico. But I also highly doubt that those small scale actions would achieve anything useful. They probably wouldn't do more than marginally curb the fentanyl uh, trade and they certainly wouldn't somehow cure the problems that we have at the border. My fear about the small scale actions would be that if they predictably did not work, then there might be pressure for going farther. 
So if it were up to me, as I've said before, I would move in the completely opposite direction uh, of simply moving towards legalization of drugs and towards making uh, legal migration easier. Uh, and I would at the very least abjure any more military action than we've already uh, been doing. But I certainly agree that small scale action with Mexico's consent, at least in the short term, it wouldn't have the kind of massive radically bad effects that larger scale action would have or that intervention without Mexico's consent would have. I do worry, though, that the small scale action, if it were to be done, uh, might create a slippery slope towards doing more. Ilya Soman is Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, Cato.org, also Professor of Law at George Mason University. Ilya, thanks so much for joining us here on The Future of Freedom. Thank you very much for having me. We thank both of our guests for joining us. Joshua Trevino, Chief of Intelligence and Research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, TexasPolicy.com, and Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University and Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, Cato.org. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network. <laughs>